temptation and deliverance. A sermon by Jonathan Edwards, or Joseph's great temptation and gracious deliverance. Genesis 39 verse 12. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. We have here and in the context an account of the remarkable behavior of Joseph in the house of Potiphar which was the occasion both of his great affliction and also of his high advancement and prosperity in the land of Egypt. We read in the beginning of the chapter how Joseph, after he had been so cruelly treated by his brethren and sold into Egypt for a slave, was advanced in the house of Potiphar, who had bought him. Joseph was one that feared God, and therefore God was with him and so influenced the heart of Potiphar, his master, did instead of keeping him as a mere slave, to which purpose he was sold, he made him a steward and overseer over his house, and all that he had was put into his hands, insomuch that we are told, verse 6, that he left all that he had in his hand, and he knew not aught that he had, save the bread which he did eat. While Joseph was in these prosperous circumstances, he met with a great temptation in his master's house, we are told that he, being a goodly person and well-favored, his mistress cast her eyes upon and lusted after him, and used all her art to tempt him to commit uncleanness with her. Concerning this temptation and his behavior under it, many things are worthy to be noted particularly. We may observe how great the temptation was that he was under, it is to be considered that Joseph was now in his youth, a season of life when persons are most liable to be overcome by temptations of this nature. And he was in a state of unexpected prosperity in Potiphar's house, which has a tendency to lift persons up, especially young ones, whereby commonly they more easily fall before temptations. And then, the superiority of the person that laid the temptation before him rendered it much the greater. She was his mistress, and he a servant under her. In the manner of her tempting him, she did not only carry herself so towards Joseph as to give him cause to suspect that he might be admitted to such criminal converse with her, but she directly proposed it to him, plainly manifesting her disposition to it so that here was not such thing as suspicion of her unwillingness to deter him, but a manifestation of her desire to entice him to it. Yea, she appeared greatly engaged in the manner, and it was not only her desire manifested to entice him, but her authority over him to enforce the temptation. She was his mistress, and he might well imagine that if he utterly refused a compliance he should incur her displeasure, and she, being his master's wife, had power to do much to his disadvantage, and to render his circumstances more uncomfortable in the family, and the temptation was the greater, in that she did not only tempt him once, but frequently, day by day, verse 10, and at last became more violent with him. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. His behavior was very remarkable under these temptations. He absolutely refused any compliance with them. He made no reply that manifested, as though the temptation had gained it all upon him, so much as to hesitate about it, 
or at all deliberate upon it. He complied in no degree, either to the gross act she proposed or anything tending towards it, or that should at all be gratifying to her wicked inclination. And he persisted resolute and unshaken under continual solicitations. Verse 10. And it came to pass, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her, or to be with her. He, to his utmost, avoided so much as being where she was, and the motives and principles from which he acted manifested by his reply to her solicitations are remarkable. He first sets before her how injuriously he should act against his master if he should comply with her proposal. Behold, my master has committed all that he has to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. But he then proceeded to inform her of that, which above all things deterred him from a compliance, namely, that it would be great wickedness and sin against God. How shall I do this and sin against God? He would not do any such thing, as he would not injure his master, but that which influenced more than all on this occasion was the fear of sinning against God. On this account, he persisted in his resolution to the last. In the text, we have an account of his behavior under the last and greatest temptation that he had from her. This temptation was great, as it was at a time when there was nobody in the house but he and his mistress. Verse 11. There was an opportunity to commit the fact with the greatest secrecy, and at this time it seems that she was more violent than ever before. She caught him by the garment. She laid hold on him, as though she were resolute to attain her purpose of him. Under these circumstances he not only refused her, but fled from her, as he would have done from one that was going to assassinate him. He escaped. As for his life, he not only would not be guilty of such a fact, but neither would he by any means be in the house with her, where he should be in the way of her temptation. This behavior of Joseph is doubtless recorded for the instruction of all. Therefore, from the words I shall observe that it is our duty not only to avoid those things that are themselves sinful, but also, as far as may be, those things which lead and expose to sin. Section 1. Why we should avoid what tends to sin. So did Joseph. He not only refused actually to commit uncleanness with his mistress who enticed him, but refused to be there, where he should be in the way of temptation. Verse 10. He refused to lie by her, or be with her. And in the text we are told he fled and got him out. He would by no means be in her company, though it was no sin in itself for Joseph to be in the house where his mistress was. But under these circumstances it would expose him to sin. Joseph was sensible he had naturally a corrupt heart, intended to betray him to sin. And therefore, he would by no means be in the way of temptation, but with haste. He fled. He ran from the dangerous place. Inasmuch as he was exposed to sin in that house, he fled out of it with as much haste as if he had been on fire, or full of enemies, 
who stood ready with drawn swords to stab him to the very heart. When she took him by the garment, he left his garment in her hands. He'd rather lose his garment than stay a moment there, where he was in such danger of losing his chastity. I said, the person should avoid things that expose to sin as far as may be, because it is possible that persons may be called to expose themselves to temptation, and when it is so, they may hope for divine strength and protection under temptation. It may be a man's indispensable duty to undertake an office or a work attended with great deal of temptation. Thus ordinarily a man ought not to run into the temptation of being persecuted for the true religion, lest the temptation should be too hard for him, but should avoid it as much as may be. Therefore Christ thus directs his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 23, When you are persecuted in one city, flee to another. Yet, the case may be so that a man may be called not to flee from persecution, but to run the venture of such a trial, trusting in God to uphold him under it. Ministers and magistrates may be obliged to continue with their people in such circumstances. As Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 6 verse 11, Should such a man as I flee? So the apostles, yea, they may be called to go into the midst of it, to those places where they cannot reasonably expect but to meet with such temptations. So Paul went up to Jerusalem, when he knew beforehand that their bonds and afflictions awaited him. Acts 20 verse 23. So in many other cases, the necessity of affairs may call upon men to engage in some business that is peculiarly attended with temptations. But when it is so, they are indeed least exposed to sin, for they are always safest in the way of duty. Proverbs 10 verse 9 He that walks uprightly walks surely. And though there may be many things by which they may have extraordinary temptations in the affairs they have undertaken, yet, if they have a clear call, it is no presumption to hope for divine support and preservation in it. But for persons needlessly to expose themselves to temptation and to do those things that tend to sin is unwarrantable and contrary to that excellent example set before us, and that we ought to avoid not only those things that are in themselves sinful, but also those things that lead and expose to sin, is manifest by the following arguments. Number one, it is very evident that we ought to use our utmost endeavors to avoid sin, which is inconsistent with needlessly doing those things that expose and lead to sin, and the greater any evil is, the greater care and the more earnest endeavors does it require to avoid it. Those evils that appear to us very great and dreadful we use proportionably great care to avoid. And therefore, the greatest evil of all requires the greatest and utmost care to avoid it. Sin is an infinite evil, because committed against an infinitely great and excellent being and so a violation of infinite obligation. Therefore, 
however great our care be to avoid sin, it cannot be more than proportionable to the evil we would avoid. Our care and endeavor cannot be infinite, as evil of sin is infinite, but yet it ought to be to the utmost of our power. We ought to use every method that tends to the avoiding of sin. This is manifest to reason, and not only so, but this is positively required of us in the word of God. Joshua 22 verse 5 Take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, a servant of the Lord, charged you, to love the Lord your God, and to walk in all of his ways, and to keep his commandments, and to cleave unto him, and to serve him with all your soul. Deuteronomy 4, verses 15 and 16. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, lest you corrupt yourselves. Luke 11, verse 36. Take heed and beware of covetousness. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Deuteronomy 4.9 Take heed to yourself. Keep your soul diligently. These and many other texts of Scripture plainly require of us the utmost possible diligence and caution to avoid sin. But how can he be said to use the utmost possible diligence and caution to avoid sin? Did voluntarily does those things which naturally expose and lead to sin? How can he be said with the utmost possible caution to avoid an enemy? Did voluntarily lays himself in his way? How can he be said to use the utmost possible caution to preserve the life of his child? that allows it to go on the edge of precipices or pits, or to play on the borders of a deep gulf, or to wander in a wood that is haunted by beasts of prey. Number two. It is evident that we ought to avoid things that expose and lead to sin, because the due sense of the evil of sin, and a just hatred of it will necessarily have this effect upon us, to cause us so to do. If we were duly sensible of the evil and dreadful nature of sin, we should have an exceeding dread of it upon our spirits. We should hate it worse than death, and should fear it worse than the devil himself, and dread it even as we dread damnation. But though things that men exceedingly dread, they naturally shun and they avoid those things that they apprehend exposed to them. As a child, that has been greatly terrified by the sight of any wild beast, will by no means be persuaded to go where it apprehends that it shall fall in its way. As sin in its own nature is infinitely hateful, so in its natural tendency, it is infinitely dreadful. It is a tendency of all sin, eternally, to undo the soul. Every sin naturally carries hell in it. Therefore, all sin ought to be treated by us as we would treat a thing that is infinitely terrible. If any one sin, yea, the least sin, does not necessarily bring eternal ruin with it, this is owing to nothing but the free grace and mercy of God to us, and not to the nature and tendency of sin itself.
but certainly we ought not to take the less care to avoid sin, or all that tends to it, for the freeness and greatness of God's mercy to us, through which there is hope of pardon, for that would be indeed a most ungrateful and foul abuse of mercy, were it made known to us that if we ever voluntarily committed any particular act of sin, we should be damned without any remedy or escape. Should we not exceedingly dread the commission of such? Should we not be very watchful and careful to stand at the greatest distance from that sin, and from everything that might expose to it, and that has any tendency to stir up our lusts, or to betray us, to such an act of sin, let us then consider that though the next voluntary act of known sin shall not necessarily and unavoidably issue in certain damnation, yet it will certainly deserve it. We shall thereby really deserve to be cast off without any remedy or hope, and it can only be owing to free grace that it will not certainly and remediflessly be followed with such a punishment and shall we be guilty of such a vile abuse of God's mercy to us as to take encouragement from it, the more boldly to expose ourselves to sin? Number three, it is evident that we ought not only to avoid sin, but things that expose and lead to sin, because this is the way we act in things that pertain to our temporal interest. Men, Avoid not only those things that are themselves a hurt or ruin of their temporal interest, but also the things that tend or expose to it. Because they love their temporal lives, they will not only actually avoid killing themselves, but they are very careful to avoid those things that bring their lives into danger, though they do not certainly know but that they may escape. They are careful not to pass rivers and deep waters on rotten ice, though they do not certainly know that they shall fall through and be drowned. They will not only avoid those things that would be in themselves a ruin of their estates, as setting their houses on fire, and burning them up with their substance, taking their money, and throwing it into the sea. But they carefully avoid those things by which their estates are exposed, they have their eyes about them, are careful with whom they deal, are watchful, that they be not overreached in their bargains, and that they do not lay themselves open to knaves and fraudulent persons. If a man be sick, of a dangerous distemper, he is careful to avoid everything that tends to increase a disorder, not only what he knows to be mortal, but other things that he fears may be prejudicial to him. Men are in this way want to take care of their temporal interest, and therefore, if we are not as careful to avoid sin as we are to avoid injury in our temporal interest, it will show a regardless disposition with respect to sin and duty, or that we do not much care that we do sin against God, God's glory is surely of as much importance and concern as our temporal interest. Certainly, we should be as careful not to be exposed to sin against the majesty of heaven and earth, as men are wont to be of a few pounds, indeed, 
The latter are but mere trifles compared with the former. Number four. We are like to do thus by our dear earthly friends. We not only are careful of those things in which the destruction of their lives or their hurt and calamity in any respect directly consist, but are careful to avoid those things that but remotely tend to it. We are careful to prevent all occasions of their loss and are watchful against that which tends in any wise to deprive them of their comfort or good name. And the reason is, because they are very dear to us. In this manner, men are wont to be careful of the good of their own children, and dread the approaches of any mischief that they apprehend they are or may be exposed to. And we should take it hard if our friends did not do thus by us. And surely we ought to treat God as a dear friend. We ought to act towards him as those that have a sincere love and unfeigned regard to him, and so ought to watch and be careful against all occasions of that which is contrary to his honor and glory. If we have not a temper and a desire so to do, it will show that, whatever our pretenses are, we are not God's sincere friends, and have no true love to him. If we should be offended at any that have professed friendship to us, if they have treated us in this manner, and were no more careful of our interest, surely God may justly be offended that we are no more careful of his glory. Number five. We would have God in his providence towards us not to order those things that tend to our hurt or expose our interest. Therefore certainly we ought to avoid those things that lead to sin against him. We desire and love to have God's providence such towards us is that our welfare may be well secured. No man loves to live exposed, uncertain and in dangerous circumstances. While he is so, he lives uncomfortably in that he lives in continual fear. We desire that God would so order things concerning us that we may be safe from fear of evil, and that no evil may come near our dwelling, and that because we dread calamity, so we do not love the appearance and approaches of it, and love to have it at a great distance from us. We desire to have God to be to us as a wall of fire round about us, to defend us, and that we should surround us as the mountains do the valleys, to guard us from every danger or enemy, that so no evil may come near us. Now, this plainly shows that we ought, in our behavior towards God, to keep it at great distance from sin, and from all that exposes to it, as we desire God and his providence to us, to keep calamity and misery at a great distance from us, and not to order those things that expose our welfare. Number six, seeing we are to pray, we may not be led into temptation. Certainly, we ought not to run ourselves into it. This is one request that Christ directs us to make to God in that form of prayer which he taught his disciples. Lead us not into temptation. And how inconsistent shall we be with ourselves if we pray to God that we should not be led into temptation and at the same time we are not careful to avoid temptation. 
but bring ourselves into it by doing those things that lead and expose to sin. What self-contradiction is it for a man to pray to God that he may be kept from that which he takes no care to avoid himself? By praying it, we may be kept from temptation. We profess to God that being in temptation is a thing to be avoided. But by running into it, we show that we choose the contrary, namely not to avoid it. Number 7. The Apostle directs us to avoid those things that are in themselves lawful, but tend to lead others into sin. Surely then we should avoid what tends to lead ourselves into sin. The Apostle directs in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Take heed lest this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Romans 14 verse 13, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Verses 20 and 21. For me, destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Now, if this rule of the apostle be agreeable to the word of Christ, as we must suppose, or expunge what he says out of the canon of the scripture, then a like rule obliges more strongly in all things that tend to lead ourselves into sin. Number eight, there are many precepts of scripture which directly and positively imply that we ought to avoid those things that tend to sin. This very thing is commanded by Christ in Matthew 26, verse 41, where he directs us to watch, lest we enter into temptation. But certainly running ourselves into temptation is the reverse of watching against it. We are commanded to abstain from all appearance of evil. In other words, do by sin as a man does by a thing, the sight or appearance of which he hates and therefore will avoid anything that looks like it, and will not come near or inside of it. Again, Christ commanded to separate from us those things that are stumbling blocks or occasions of sin, however dear they are to us. Matthew 5 verse 29 If your right eye offend you, pluck it out and cast it from you. Verse 30 And if your right hand offend you, cut it off. By the right hand, offending us is not meant it's paining us, but the word in the original signifies being a stumbling block. If your right hand prove a stumbling block or occasion to fall, in other words, an occasion to sin, though things are called offenses or stumbling blocks in the New Testament, which are the occasions of falling into sin, Yea, Christ tells us we must avoid them, however dear they are to us, though as dear as our right hand or right eye. If there be any practice that naturally tends and exposes us to sin, we must have done with it, though we love it never so well, and are never so loath to part with it, though it be as contrary to our inclination as to cut off our own right hand or pluck out our own right eye, and that upon pain of damnation. For it is intimated that if we do not, we must go with two hands and two eyes. 
into hell fire. Again, God took great care to forbid the children of Israel those things that tended to lead them into sin. For this reason, he forbade them marrying strange wives. Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4. Neither shall you make marriages with them, for they will turn away your sons from following me, that they may serve other gods. For this reason, they were commanded to destroy all those things that the nations of Canaan had used in their idolatry. And if any were enticed over to idolatry, they were to be destroyed without mercy, though ever so near and dear friends, they were not only to be parted with, but stoned with stones. Yea, they themselves were to fall upon them and put them to death. Though son or daughter heard their bosom friend, Deuteronomy 13 verse 6 and so on, if your brother or your son or your daughter or the wife of your bosom, or your friend, which is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods. You shall not consent to him, neither shall your eye pity him, neither shall you spare. You shall not conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first upon him to put him to death. Again, the wise man warns us to avoid dull things that tend and expose us to sin, especially the sin of uncleanness. Proverbs 6, verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom, and his clothes not be burnt? Can one go upon hot coals, and his feet not be burnt? So whosoever touches her shall not be innocent. This is the truth held forth. Avoid those customs and practices that naturally tend to stir up lust. And there are many examples in scripture which have the force of precept and recorded as not only worthy, but demand our imitation. The conduct of Joseph is one, and that recorded of King David is another. Psalm 39, 1 and 2. I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. I was dumb with silence. I held my peace, even from good, even from good. That is, he was so watchful over his words and kept at such a great distance from speaking what might in any way tend to sin that he avoided in certain circumstances, speaking what was itself lawful, lest he should be betrayed into that which was sinful. Number nine, a prudent sense of our own weakness and explosiveness to yield to temptation obliges us to avoid that which leads or exposes to sin. Whoever knows himself and is sensible how weak he is, and his constant exposedness to run into sin, how full of corruption his heart is, which, like fuel, is ready to catch fire and bring destruction upon him, how much he has in him to incline him to sin, and how unable he is to stand of himself. Who is sensible of this, and has any regard of his duty? Will he not be very watchful against 
everything that may lead and expose to sin. On this account, Christ directed us in Matthew 26, verse 41, to watch and pray, lest we enter into temptation. To reason is added, the flesh is weak. He who, in confidence of his own strength, boldly runs a venture of sinning by going into temptation, manifests great presumption and a sottish insensibility of his own weakness. He that trusts in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 28, verse 26. The wisest and strongest, and some of the most holy men in the world, have been overthrown by such means. So was David. So was Solomon. His wise turned away his heart. Is such person so eminent for holiness worth this way led into sin? Surely, it should be a warning to us. Let him that thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Section 2. What things lead and expose to sin? If anything be made out clearly from reason and the word of God to be our duty, this would be enough with all Christians. Will a follower of Christ stand objecting and disputing against what is irrefragably proved and demonstrated to be his duty? But some may be ready to inquire, How shall we know what things lead and expose to sin? Let a man do what he will. He cannot avoid sinning, as long as he has such a corrupt heart within him. And there is nothing a man can do, but he may find some temptation in it. And though it be true that a man ought to avoid those things that lead and expose to sin, and those things which have a special tendency to expose men to sin, are what we ought to shun, as much as in us lies, yet how shall we judge and determine what things have a natural tendency to sin, or do especially lead to it? I would answer in some particulars which are plain and easy, and which cannot be denied without the greatest absurdity. Number one, that which borders on those sins to which the lusts of men's hearts strongly incline them is of this sort. Men come into the world with many strong and violent lusts in their hearts and are exceeding prone of themselves to transgress, even in the safest circumstances in which they can be placed. And surely, so much the nearer they are to that sin, to which they are naturally strongly inclined, so much the more are they exposed. If any of us who are parents should see our children near the brink of some deep pit, or close by the edge of the precipice of a high mountain, and not only so, but the ground upon which the child stood slippery and steeply descending directly toward the precipice, should we not reckon a child exposed in such a case? Should we not be in haste to remove the child from its very dangerous situation? It was a manner among the Israelites to build their houses with flat roofs so that persons might walk on the tops of their houses. And therefore God took care to make it a law among them that every man should have battlements upon the edges of their roofs lest any person should fall off and be killed. Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 
When you build a new house, then shall you make a battlement for your roof, lest any person should fall off and be killed. When you build a new house, then you shall make a battlement for your roof. Did you bring not blood upon your house if any man fall from there? And certainly, we ought to take the like care that we do not fall into sin, which carries in it eternal death. We should, as it were, fix a battlement, a guard, to keep us from the edge of the precipice. Much more ought we to take care that we do not go upon a roof that is not only without battlements, but when it is steep, and we shall naturally incline to fall. Men's lusts are like strong enemies, endeavoring to draw them into sin. If a man stood upon a dangerous precipice and had enemies about him, pulling and drawing him, endeavoring to throw him down, would he in such a case choose or dare to stand near the edge? Would he not endeavor, for his own safety, to keep at a distance? Number two. Though things attend to feed lusts in the imagination are of this kind, they lead and expose men to sin. Though things that have a natural tendency to excite in the mind, the imagination of that which is the object of the lust, certainly tend to feed and promote that lust. What can be more evident than that a presenting of the object tends to stir up the appetite? Reason and experience teach this. Therefore, all things, whether words or actions, which have a tendency to expose to sin, tend also to reason the mind imaginations of what the lust tends to. It is certainly wrong to feed a lust, even in the imagination. It is quite contrary to the holy rules of God's words. Proverbs 24, verse 9, The thought of the foolish is sin. Matthew 5:28. Whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery, a man, by gratifying his lusts and his imagination and thoughts, may make his soul in the sight of God to be a hold of foul spirits, and like a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And sinful imaginations tend to sinful actions, and outward behavior in the end. Lust is always first conceived in the imagination, and then brought forth in the outward practice. You may see the progress of it in James 1.15. Then, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. Such things are abominable in the sight of a pure and holy God. We are commanded to keep at a great distance from spiritual pollution, and to hate even the very garments spotted with the flesh. Jude, verse 23. Number 3. Though things that the experience and observation of mankind show to be ordinarily attended or followed with sin or of this sort, experience is a good rule to determine by in things of this nature. How do we know the natural tendency of anything but by observation and experience? Men observe and find that some things are commonly attended and followed with other things, and hence mankind pronounce that they have a natural tendency to them. 
we have no other way to know the tendency of anything. Thus, men by observation and experience know that the warmth of the sun and showers of rain are attended with the growth of plants, and hence they learn that they have a tendency to it. So they find by experience that the bite of some kinds of serpents is commonly followed with illness, and often with death. And so they learn that the bite of such serpents has a natural tendency to bring disorder upon the body and exposes to death. And so, if experience and common observation shows that any particular practice or custom is commonly attended with that which is very sinful, we may safely conclude that such a practice tends to sin, that it leads and exposes to it. Thus, we may be determined the tavern haunting and gaming are things that tend to sin, because common experience and observation show that those practices are attended with a great deal of sin and wickedness. The observation of all ages and all nations with one voice declares it. It shows where taverns are much frequented for drinking and the like, they are especially places of sin, of profaneness, and other wickedness, and it shows that those towns where there is much of this are places where no good generally prevails, and it also shows that those persons that are given much to frequenting taverns are most commonly vicious persons, and so of gaming, is playing at cards, experience shows that those persons that practice this do generally fall into much sin. Hence these practices are become infamous among all sober, virtuous persons. Number four. Another way by which persons may determine of some things that they lead and expose to sin is by their own experience, or what they have found in themselves. This surely is enough to convince them that such things actually lead and expose to sin. For what will convince men? if their own experience will not. Thus, if men have found by undeniable experience that any practice or custom stirs up lust in them and has betrayed them into foolish and sinful behavior or sinful thoughts, they may determine that they lead to sin. If they, upon examining themselves, must own that a custom or practice is dispose them to the omission of known duty, such as secret or family prayer, and has indisposed them to reading and religious meditation. If they find, since they have complied with such a custom, they are less watchful of their hearts, less disposed to anything that is serious, that the frame of their mind is more light, and their hearts less disposed on the things of another world, and more after vanity. These are sinful effects, and therefore, if experience shows a customer practice to be attended with these things, then experience shows that they lead and expose to sin. Number five. We may determine whether a thing be of an evil tendency or not by the effect and an outpouring of the Spirit of God and a general flourishing of religion has with respect to it. If this puts a stop to any practice or custom, and roots it out, 
Surely it argues that that practice or custom is of no good tendency. If there be no hurt in it, and it tends to no hurt, why should the Spirit of God destroy it? The Spirit of God has no tendency to destroy anything that is neither sinful, nor has any tendency to sin. Why should it? Why should we suppose that he is an enemy to that which has no hurt in it, nor has any tendency to that which is hurtful? The flourishing of religion has no tendency to abolish or expel anything. That is no way against religion. That, which is not against religion, religion will not appear against. It is a rule that holds in all contraries and opposites. The opposition is equal on both sides. So contrary as light is to darkness. So contrary as darkness to light. So contrary as the flourishing of religion is to any custom. Just so contrary is that custom to the flourishing of religion. That custom that religion tends to destroy. That custom if it prevail, tends also to destroy religion. Therefore, if the flourishing of religion and the outpouring of the Spirit of God tends to overthrow any custom that takes place or prevails, we may surely determine that that custom is either in itself sinful or tends and exposes to evil. Number six. We may determine by the effect to the general decay of religion has with respect to them, whether they be things of a sinful tendency or not. If they be things that come with a decay of religion, that creep in, is that decays, we may determine they are things of no good tendency. The withdrawing of good does not let in good, but evil, evil. Not good comes in, its good gradually ceases. What is it but darkness that comes in, its light withdraws. Therefore, if there be any decay of religion in the town, or in particular persons, and upon this, any certain customs or practices take place, and are allowed, which were wholly abstained from and renounced, when religion was in a more flourishing state, we may safely conclude that such customs and practices are contrary to the nature of true religion, and therefore in themselves sinful, or tending to sin. Number seven, we may in many things determine whether any custom be of a good tendency by considering what the effect would be if it was openly and universally owned and practiced. There are many things which persons practice somewhat secretly, and which they plead to be not hurtful, but which, if they had suitable consideration to discern the consequence of everybody openly practicing the same, would soon show a most woeful state of things. If therefore there be any custom that will not bear universal open practice and profession, we may be determined that that custom is of an ill tendency, for if it is neither sinful in itself, nor tends to anything sinful, then it is no matter how open it is, for we need not be afraid of that custom being too prevalent and universal, 
it has no ill tendency in it. Section 3. A serious warning to all, and especially young people. Thus, I have mentioned some general rules by which to determine and judge what things are of a bad and sinful tendency. And these things are so plain that for a person to deny them would be absurd and ridiculous. I would now in the name of God warn all persons to avoid such things as appear by these rules to lead and expose to sin. And particularly, I would take occasion to warn young people as they would approve themselves fears of God to avoid all such things in company that being tried by these rules will appear to have a tendency to sin. Avoid all such ways of talking and acting as have a tendency to this, and follow the example of Joseph. Not only gross acts of uncleanness, but all degrees of lasciviousness, both in talking and acting, are strictly forbidden in Scripture as what should not be so much as once named among saints or Christians. Galatians 5, 9 Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Ephesians 5, 3-5 But fornication and all uncleanness, let it not be once named among you as become saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient. For this you know, did no whoremonger, nor unclean person, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. We should hate even the garments spotted with the flesh, i.e., should hate, and shun all that in the least degree, approaches to any such thing. And I desire that certain customs to common among young people may be examined by those rules that have been mentioned, the custom in particular of young people of different sexes reclining together, however little is made of it, and however ready persons may be to laugh at its being condemned, if it be examined by the rules that have been mentioned, will appear, past all contradiction, to be one of those things that lead and expose to sin. And I believe experience, in fact, abundantly bear witness to it. It has been one main thing that has led to the growth of uncleanness in the land. And there are other customs and liberties customarily used among young people in company, which they who use them know that they lead to sin. They know that they stir up their lusts, and this is the very end for which they do it, to gratify their lusts in some measure. Little do such persons consider what a holy God they are soon to be judged by, who abominates the impurities of their hearts. If therefore they do actually stir up and feed lust then certainly they tend to further degrees and more gross acts. That which stirs up lust makes it more violent, and does therefore certainly the more expose persons to be overcome by it. How evident and undeniable are the things, and how strange that any should make a derision of them. Possibly you may be confident of your own strength, and may think with yourself that you are not in danger, 
to there is no temptation in thee, things, but what you are able easily to overcome, but you should consider that the most self-confident are most in danger. Peter was very confident that he should not deny Christ, but how dreadfully otherwise was the event. If others that have fallen into gross sin should declare how it was with them, doubtless they would say that they at first thought there was no danger. They were far from the thoughts that ever they should commit such wickedness. But yet, by venturing further and further, they fell at last into the foulest and grossest transgressions. Persons may long withstand temptation and be suddenly overcome at last, none so much in danger. It's the most bold, dear, most safe, who are most sensible of their own weakness, most distrustful of their own hearts, and most sensible of their continual need of restraining grace. Young persons, with respect to the sin of uncleanness, are dealt with by the devil, just as some give an account of serpents, charming birds, and other animals down into their mouths. If the serpent takes them with his eyes, though they seem to be affrighted by it, yet they will not flee away, but will keep the serpent in sight, and approach near and near to him, till they fall a prey. Another custom that I desire may be examined by the aforementioned rules is that of young people of both sexes, getting together in companies for mirth, and spending the time together till late in the night, in their jollity. I desire our young people to suffer their ears to be open to what I have to say upon this point, as I am the messenger of the Lord of hosts to them, and not determined that they will not hearken before they have heard what I shall say. I hope there are but few persons among us so abandoned as to determine that they will go on in a practice, whether they are convinced that it is unlawful or not, or even though it should be proved to them to be unlawful by undeniable arguments. Let us then examine this custom and practice by what I have said. It has been proved undeniably that we ought not to go on in a practice that leads and exposes to sin, and rules have been laid down to judge what does thus expose and lead to it, which I think are plain and undeniable. Certainly a Christian will not be unwilling to have his practices examined and tried by the rules of reason in God's word, but will rather rejoice in it. And I desire particularly that the practice may be tried by that sure touchstone of experience. This is one of the rules of trial that have been mentioned. Did any custom which the experience and observation of mankind show to be unordinarily attended with sin? may be concluded to be unlawful. And if we look abroad in the country, I doubt not, but these two things will be found. One, that is to those places where there is most of this carried on among young people, as there is more of it in some places than others, it will be found. It's a thing that universally holds that the young people there are commonly a loose, vain, and irreligious generation little regarding God, heaven, or hell, or anything but vanity, and it commonly in those towns where most frolicking is carried on, during the most frequent breakings out of gross sins, fornication in particular. Number two, if we go through the country, 
We shall, for the most part, find that those persons who are most addicted to this practice are the firstest from serious thought, and are the vainest and loosest upon other accounts. And when should this be, if such a practice was not sinful, or had not a natural tendency to lead persons into sin? Now I appeal to those who have made pretenses to serious religion and saving piety. You have formerly pretended to keep up religion in your closets and in your own souls. Now, seriously, ask yourselves whether or not you have not found that this practice has indisposed you to serious religion and taken off your minds from it. Has it not tended to your neglect of secret prayer? And if you have not wholly neglected it, have you not found that you have been abundantly more ready to turn it off in any manner and be glad to have done with it? more backward to reading and serious meditation and such things, and that your mind has been exceedingly diverted from religion, and that, for some time, I do not send you far off to find out whether this custom be not of a bad tendency, not beyond the sea, but your own breast. There, let the manner be determined. Let us now try this custom by the effect which the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the people has with respect to it. This we are under great advantage to do, because there has lately been in this place the most remarkable outpouring of the Spirit of God that has ever been in New England, it may be, in the world, since the Apostles' days. And it were well known that before then the custom did prevail in the town, but after, the custom was altogether laid aside, and was so for several years. No account can be given why the Spirit of God and the flourishing of religion should abolish such a custom, unless that custom be, either in its nature or tendency, an enemy to the Spirit of God and to religion. The fruits of the Spirit of God are good, and therefore it is good that this custom should be removed, for this is plainly one of the effects, and if so, it is because the custom is bad either in its nature or tendency. Otherwise, there would be no good in its being removed. The Spirit of God abolishes custom for this reason, because if it had been kept up in the town, it would have a direct tendency to hinder that work which the Spirit was about to do amongst us. This was undeniably the reason. Again, let this practice be tried by the effect that the general decay of religion has with respect to it. Now we have a trial. It is now time that religion is greatly decayed amongst us, and the effect is that this custom comes in with this decay. Young people begin again to set up their old custom of frolicking, as it is called, and spend in a great part of the night in it, to the violation of family order. What is the reason? If this custom is not bad, either in its nature or tendency, that it did not come in before, when religion was lively. Why does it stay till it can take the advantage of the withdrawment of religion? This is a sign that it is a custom that shuns the spirit of lively religion, as darkness shuns the light, and never comes in till light withdraws. And here again, I would send persons to their own experience. How did this practice come in with you in particular? You. The two or three years ago seemed to be so engaged in religion. Did it not come in? Did you not begin to practice it? As a sense of religion wore off, 
And what is a mantra? Why did you not set up the practice then when your heart was taken up about reading, meditation, and secret prayer to God? If this did not at all stand in the way of them, and is no hindrance to them, why were you not engaged in both together? What account can you give of it? Why did you leave off this practice and custom, or abstain from it? To what purpose is this changing? One while it must be avoided as evil, and another, while practice and pleaded for is good. The making of such an alteration does not look well, nor will it be for the honor of religion in the eye of the world. For whether the practice be lawful or not, yet such a thing will surely be improved to our disadvantage, for your avoiding it then has this appearance in the eye of the country, that then you condemned it, and therefore your now returning to it will appear to them as backsliding in you. Such changelings are evermore in the eye of the world, greatly to the dishonor of their profession. Let it be what it will.